0: This morning, God's word comes to us from Romans chapter 9. Romans 9. We're going to begin our reading at verse 6 and then read through verse 24 of this chapter. Romans 9. Beginning at verse 6, what we hear now is God's word. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Here we end the reading of God's holy word. I invite you to turn to the back of your Trinity Psalter hymnal to page 860 in the back section. This is the Belgic Confession of Faith, one of the doctrinal standards of our church. And this morning we're going to read Article 16. That's found in the bottom of the second column on page 860. Reading Article 16 entitled, The Doctrine of Election. We believe that all Adam's descendants having thus fallen into perdition and ruin by the sin of the first man, God showed himself to be as he is, merciful and just. He is merciful in withdrawing and saving from this perdition those whom he, in his eternal and unchangeable counsel, has elected and chosen in Jesus Christ our Lord by his pure goodness, without any consideration of their works. He is just in leaving the others in their ruin and fall, into which they have plunged themselves. This is our confession of faith. Well, this morning in our study of the word of God as summarized in the Belgic Confession, we come to one of the most beautiful, one of the most comforting doctrines in Scripture. The truth of God's electing love toward His people. We are in that section in the Confession talking about man's fallen condition. We have talked about the fact that man, although in Adam created with a free will, lost the freedom of that will when Adam chose to deliberately go against the Word of God. We have talked about how the fact that 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 sin was imputed to all of Adam's descendants, including us. All of us, fallen and sinful and unable to do anything about it. And in this section now we come to that wonderful comfort for the child of God. That God has chosen some for salvation. It's, uh, it's sad that this particular biblical truth has generated so much argument and disagreement. We're talking about the doctrine of election. Children, what is election? Election means making a choice. That's what election is. Election is making a choice. And when we talk about election in salvation, it is about someone making a choice to be saved. And you can go to churches where it is very, very clear the choice lies with you. You will be implored. You will be conjoled. Oh, please, won't you choose for God today? God is just sitting there on the sidelines, wringing his hands, waiting for you to come to him. Please choose Jesus. That is not the choice we are talking about in election. When we talk about the biblical doctrine of election, it is not our choice, it is God's choice. He is the one who in his love, in his mercy, in his grace, in his compassion, chooses those who will be saved. It's a doctrine of wonderful comfort for the child of God. Now perhaps, uh, knowing we were going to talk about election this morning, you might think I would have used Ephesians 1 for our text, and that certainly would be appropriate a text. I have said many, many times, if you're going to talk about election, you have to know Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. The beautiful doctrine of election so clearly laid out in scripture. He chose us in him before the foundations of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption as his children. All about God's free choice in election. We are looking this morning at Romans chapter 9. Because in Romans 9, as glorious as election is, it is highlighted even more when it's it's set against the backdrop against those whom God has chosen not to elect. This highlights the beautiful character of God, that character referred to in the Belgic Confession. God is merciful and God is just. And both of of these attributes of God so beautifully seen in the doctrine of election those whom he has chosen, and reprobation, those whom he has chosen not to save. This doctrine highlights the character of God, and that's where our confession begins. We believe that all Adam's descendants, having thus fallen into perdition and ruin by the sin of the first man, God showed himself to be as he is, merciful and just. And that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. The mercy and the justice of God. The extreme mercy in God's electing choice. Paul says in verse six, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham Because they are his offspring. Paul is answering those who would say, look, we have uh, confidence, we have comfort, we have hope simply because of who we are. We are children of Abraham. We belong to the the chosen race. And Paul is going to instruct them and teach them that, that the blessing and the comfort of being a child of God is not simply because of natural generation, not because they could trace their lineage back to Abraham. For he says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. No, he says, remember through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Remember children, Abraham had those two those two kids those two boys yes there was uh, israel but there was also uh, i uh, excuse me yes there was israel there was also ishmael isaac and ishmael and in fact ishmael was the older son if there would be anyone they would want to claim and hold on to it should be the older son ishmael but it's not No, it is through Isaac that the promise line comes. It is through Isaac, the chosen one. And how happy, how thankful we are for that. It is through through Isaac by faith. It is the children of promise. Going on to verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of promise are counted as offspring, For this is what the promise said about the next this time next year, I will return, Sarah will have a son. The promise of a line, a line of promise, not simply natural descent. And I say how thankful we are for that. Because there's not many of us here that this morning could claim a natural generation from either Abraham or any of his sons. No, God's mercy in in going beyond the physical bounds. And it is for the children of promise. That promise ultimately culminating in the coming of Jesus Christ, the one who fulfilled all the promises, the one in whom we are called to place our faith. This is the mercy of God in, in choosing a people, not simply from a particular natural line, but those who believe in Jesus Christ, God's election in salvation, an eternal decree. God, God, for his own purposes, chose Abraham and his line. Not because Abraham had done anything worthy. God simply came to him. Again, from verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. What's Paul saying? It's not based on what we do. Our election is not based on what we have done. It is based on what God has done. He is the one who calls. He is the one who chooses. He is the one who elects. That's the beauty of Ephesians chapter 1. That's the beauty of Romans 9. God's sovereign choice in election and God's specific choice in election. We have individuals named in our text this morning. God particularly chooses those who will come to faith. He particularly calls them and and, and cares for them. And what a blessing that is for us. God knows you. He has called you. He has chosen you. So when we come to him and we are anxious and we are worried and we are depressed, it's not as if a stranger is coming to him. The God who has chosen particularly each and every one of his own is the God who hears us when we call out to him the specific choice in election and the effectual call that all of those whom God has chosen will come to faith. God has chosen a people for his very own and he will bring them to himself through the instrument of faith, faith that gift of God which allows us to embrace Jesus Christ. This too, an evidence of God's mercy in giving us the means by which we might embrace Jesus Christ. His his electing love is unconditional, not by works, but that his purpose in election might continue. We are not chosen because of what we have done. Uh, Particularly, we think of where we are in the confession, in light of man's sinfulness, in light of man's fallenness, that every part of us is tainted with sin. The only hope we have is that that someone or something outside of us might accomplish our salvation. We cannot. We are fallen, we are sinful, dead in transgressions and sins. But God comes to us. And God gives life to us. And this, this, this beautiful biblical doctrine is that which gives us hope, that which gives us comfort. We cannot will ourselves into heaven no it is god's will that each and every one of his own will be taken all the way through salvation to be with him for all eternity that is the beautiful call of the gospel is to to embrace to believe this glorious truth to believe in Jesus Christ. To believe he has done everything necessary to accomplish our salvation. We don't come to God with a laundry list of things we have done. Look, look how good we are God. No, we come simply pleading all the finished work of Christ. And we believe this truth and we embrace this truth. And we know this truth to be our very own. God's mercy in choosing some from the fallen mass of humanity, God's mercy in choosing some to be his very own through faith in Jesus Christ, the mercy of God in election. Romans nine reminds us God is not only merciful, but he is also just. And we don't don't play these two attributes of God off from each other. We don't play the love of God and the wrath of God off each other. God is perfectly both in perfect unity. And so too with his mercy and his justice. These two perfectly coexist in predestination. God's electing mercy, his electing love, but also his justice scene in reprobation, in the fact that there are some, if God has chosen some, there is some who he has not chosen. Now we would have detractors who would say that's simply a logical argument that comes because he chooses some, he must not choose some. It's not a logical argument, it's a biblical argument. It's what what Paul reveals to us through the Spirit in Romans chapter nine. Look at verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Is there injustice in God? No. It is his choice to show mercy. It is his choice. But he is not obligated. God is not in our debt. As if he owes us anything. We, fallen in Adam, don't deserve anything from God. And he would be perfectly just to leave us all in that fallen mass of humanity. What does our confession say? He is just in leaving the others in their ruin and fall into which they have plunged themselves. God is perfectly just. He is not unjust in reprobation. It is a manifestation of His justice. That those who would, who would refuse to have anything to do with God, those who have no concern about God, He leaves them exactly where they want to be. No one can claim on that judgment day, that final judgment day, that God is somehow unjust because He failed to elect anyone. No, no, no one say to God, look God, I would have believed in You, but You didn't choose me. Man is fallen, man is sinful, man is unable to make that choice. And God in His justice leaves us exactly where we want to be in our transgressions, in our sins. It is as if God says, you wanted nothing to do with me in this life, I will give you the very same thing in the life to come. That is His perfect justice. No one, no one can charge God with being unfair, with being unjust. When he leaves us in the condition that we have earned, you want your works to count for something in salvation, they can do nothing but condemn you. And when God leaves us there, he is not unjust. He is perfectly just in giving us what we have earned and what we have deserved, God's perfect justice in reprobation. As I said, this, um, this, this biblical doctrine, this comforting doctrine, is often challenged uh, by those who just don't like it. It just, it just in, in our minds, it just doesn't seem fair. And, and, and to be sure, it is a difficult doctrine. Calvin called it a horrible doctrine, an awful doctrine. But it's a biblical doctrine. We can't can't choose not to believe it because we don't like it. It's revealed to us in Scripture. It's revealed to us in Romans chapter 9. And when when you begin to have discussions, perhaps with co-workers, classmates, about predestination, about election and reprobation, Uh, Another text you absolutely must know, a text you absolutely must know is Romans chapter nine, verse 19 and 20. It's as if Paul anticipates the objections. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why does God still blame me? For who can resist his will? The argument is look, God didn't choose me. How can he blame me for my sin? Who can resist the will of God? What is the answer? And that's the objection you will get. Look, it's not my fault then. God did not choose me. It's not my fault if I'm not saved. What's the answer? Verse 20. Who are you to answer back to God? Who are you, O man? to answer back to God. We are talking about God's eternal decrees. Decrees made before the foundation of the world. And we think we think we have the ability to call God into question? It would certainly be something if a believer began to call God into question, but an unbeliever, an atheist, who doesn't believe in God, the arrogance to say, I'm going to bring God to task. How does he blame me? Who finds fault? It's only his will. Who are you? Who are you to answer back to God? The God of the heavens and the earth. And Paul gives us this picture, this analogy of a potter. Verse, 21, uh, verse 20 again. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Imagine that, kids, if you were gonna mold something with clay or with Play-Doh, and you made a, a little vase, a little vase to put on the table, and you made it just the way you wanted, and you put that vase there, and all of a sudden that vase started talking to you. And that vase said, you know what? I really wanted to be an ashtray instead. The vase began to question why you made it the way you did. I really wanted to be taller, longer, different. You would say, I made you. It was my choice. I made you exactly the way I wanted. Who are you? To answer back to the maker. And, and don't miss this. Paul uses this picture of the potter and the clay. Has the potter no right over the clay? Over the clay. It's not as if each of us is this beautiful crystal figurine that God then takes and smashes on the ground. We are the clay. We are the dust. We are the dirt. And He takes us and forms us into something beautiful. Who would dare answer back? to a God like that who has the freedom as the potter to make some vessels for good use and some vessels for other use. Paul goes on, verse 22. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. We see the contrast between God's electing love in salvation against the backdrop of what we deserved God's perfect justice in reprobation. God chooses some, and some he does not. It's a difficult truth, it's a hard truth. Some come to Romans 9 and they come to a verse like like verse 12 and 13 and say, I don't understand this. Uh, the, The mother was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. These were twin boys. These were twin brothers who hadn't done anything. And yet God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I just don't understand that. And I have to confess, I don't understand it fully either. Oh, I, 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 get, I get the second half. Esau I hated. I understand that. Esau fallen sinful. What I don't understand This Jacob I loved. The very same. Same clay. Same dirt. And yet God says, this one I love. The mercy and the justice of God in election. It is of great comfort to the child of God. Great comfort to know that that my salvation is not dependent upon me. But God, before the foundations of the world, has elected, has chosen each and every one of his own, particularly individually. And he will fulfill his purpose and bring them to faith. That's how Paul concludes this blessedness even on us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. That's us. We rejoice in the glorious doctrine of election. We find our hope, we find our comfort, we find great security that God has elected, he has chosen, he has secured a people for his very own. Let's join together in prayer. Lord, our God, we thank you for the glorious truths of Scripture, the truth you have given to us there about your mercy and about your justice. We know, God, these things are perfect in you. They are without contradiction. Help us, O God, to take wonderful joy and wonderful comfort in who you are and what you have done, securing the election and the redemption of each and every one of your own, May we rejoice, O God, in that knowledge that you know us particularly, individually. May we leave here comforted, comforted by who you are, merciful and just. Hear our prayer, O God, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We are going to read from the back of the praise book, which is in front of you, the section of the form for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The first section's there. You may follow along on page 44 if you would like to. Reading from page 44, the institution of the Supper. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, let us give full attention to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. But let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That we may celebrate the supper of the Lord to our comfort, it's necessary for us to examine ourselves fully and further to consider carefully what purpose for which Christ ordained and instituted this sacrament, namely, His remembrance. The true examination of ourselves consists of three parts. First, let everyone carefully consider their sins and ungodliness, that they may hate their sins and humble themselves before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that He, rather than leaving it unpunished, has punished it in His beloved Son, Jesus Christ with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Second, let everyone examine his heart to see whether they also believe the sure promise of God that all their sins are forgiven only because of the passion and death of Jesus Christ and that the complete righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given to them as their own. Indeed, so completely as if they had personally satisfied for all their sins and fulfilled all righteousness. Third, let everyone carefully examine their own conscience to see if they are fully determined to show true thankfulness to God in every area of life and to walk sincerely before his face and whether they with full sincerity strive to lay aside all enmity, hatred, envy and earnestly resolve from this day forward to live with their neighbor in true love and unity. All those then, Who are of this mind, God will certainly receive in grace and count as worthy partakers of the table of His Son, Jesus Christ. On the contrary, those who do not sincerely believe this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment upon themselves. According to the command of Christ and the Apostle Paul, those who know themselves to be engaging in the following sins without repentance have no part in the Kingdom of Christ and should therefore abstain from coming to the table of the Lord. Idolaters, those who call upon deceased saints, angels, or any other creature. Those who revere images, those who engage in witchcraft, fortune-telling, occult practices, or other forms of superstition. All those who despise God, his word, and the holy sacraments. All blasphemers, those who seek to cause discord, factions, and dissensions in the church or in the state all perjurers, all those who are disobedient to their parents and those in lawful authority, all murderers, contentious people, and those who live in hatred and envy against their neighbors, all adulterers, fornicators, drunkards, thieves, the greedy, robbers, gamblers, covetous people, and all who lead offensive lives. All those who continue in such sins shall abstain from the Lord's Supper so they may feel the weight of God's judgment and condemnation. But this warning is not intended to discourage those believers with contrite hearts, as if no one might come to the Lord's Supper unless they were without sin. We do not come to this Supper to testify about our own perfection and righteousness. On the contrary, we come seeking our life in Jesus Christ apart from ourselves. We come confessing our misery, admitting that we have many shortcomings and do not have perfect faith. We also confess that we do not serve God with sufficient zeal, but that we must struggle daily with the weakness of our faith and struggle against the evil lusts of our flesh. However, the grace of the Holy Spirit makes us sorry for our shortcomings, gives us the desire to live according to God's commandments, and helps us to fight against unbelief. Therefore, we can rest assured that no sin or weakness that still remains in us against our will can prevent us from being received by God's grace and from being worthy partakers of this heavenly food and drink. Let's sing together from the Trinity Psalter hymnal number 425. Number 425, how sweet and awesome is the place where Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? We're gonna sing all six verses, 425. Let's stand together as we sing. Receive the parting blessing of our God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.